Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Michael Kazin. He is a professor of history at Georgetown University and the editor of the fine magazine Dissent, magazine of politics and culture published since 1954. Uh, he writes about history. He writes frequently in the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The Nation, The Daily Beast. And we are going to talk about his new book this year called War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Michael Kazin, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a centennial, uh, in a way, of this war, isn't it? Very much so. <laughs> the U.S. declared war on Germany uh, April 6, 1917. Uh, smart move. Good, uh, good results uh, in the long term? Uh, I don't think so, no. <laughs> uh, you know, the war had been going on for uh, almost three years uh, by the time the United States entered the war, and uh, U.S. Uh, economically was tilting towards uh, the the allies, uh, Britain and France uh, and Italy. Russia uh, was also an ally at the time, uh, but it was getting out of the war uh, due to revolution. Um, and uh, I think uh, uh, even though most Americans by the time the U.S. declared war were probably in favor of it, and the U.S. actually had a major part in deciding how the war turned out because uh, all these fresh American troops uh, came in to Europe uh, and the Germans just couldn't handle that many fresh troops. The Germans were exhausted and hungry and, uh, and there were strikes taking place in Germany and also in other countries in Europe. But I think... Um, the result of the war was that the Germans lost, and uh, uh, the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, who said he wanted a world made safe for democracy, uh, uh, ended up um, with a lot of bitterness uh, on all sides, uh, help in the rise of Hitler. Uh, uh, in Germany, uh, there were revolutions which took place uh, in Russia, of course, and also almost revolutions in other countries, which wouldn't have happened uh, without the bitterness and uh, misery caused by the war. And in the end, uh, World War I, as most people who know their history know, was just a precursor to World War II, uh, because Hitler was a colonel in the German army and really believed that uh, uh, his side had been stabbed in the back, as he put it, by Jews and socialists uh, who tried to maneuver to make sure the uh, the Germans lost the war. So, uh, to make a long story short, World War I uh, helped to bring on World War II, did not bring about a more democratic world, in fact, much the reverse. You had uh, authoritarian governments, uh, both on the left and the right, which in many ways were the inheritors of the bitterness uh, of World War One, And I think, in that sense, it was a mistake for the U.S. to enter the war. It didn't achieve the purposes that the United States uh, leaders wanted to achieve. In fact, you suggest in the book that uh, it contributed to the rise of, of Nazism, of fascism, of Japanese imperialism, uh, the Sykes-Picot carving up of the Middle East that is uh, so popular in that region to this day. Uh, and I, I might even suggest through the, the shunning of, uh, of Ho Chi Minh, the, uh, the future war on Vietnam. Uh, it, it, but what would have happened... Uh, if the United States had not gotten into World War One, because you know the Germans losing, yay! That sounds good to many American ears, I imagine. Well, this is, gets into the murky <laughs> territory of what historians call counterfactual history. Sure. Uh, of course, we can never know. Uh, Saturday Night Live used to have a great routine: "What if Eleanor Roosevelt could fly?" Uh, and 
<clears throat> maybe it was a bit sexist, I don't know, but no, obviously, uh, you change one very big thing in history, you change a lot of other things, you never know what's going to happen, but it's pretty clear, I think, that as I mentioned before, all sides, both the side the U.S. joined, the Allied side, and the side of the so-called Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire on the other side, uh, were exhausted by the war. The people were beginning to get frustrated by it. Uh, many Germans were, were dying of hunger because there was a British blockade. Um, France had been invaded, uh, northern France, by the Germans, and that's where a lot of the battles on the Western Front took place. So I think... Um, there's a good up, a good chance that we'll never know for sure that that if U.S. hadn't entered the war, some kind of negotiated settlement would have been arrived at, or perhaps the Germans would have won, but winning would have been a rather hollow victory, I think. Uh, but either way, it would have been. It's difficult, I think, to imagine uh, the Nazi movement, the National Socialist movement that Hitler ran, arising from a situation where there's a negotiated settlement, uh, no side is really the victor, or where the Germans are victorious. Uh, so you know, I wouldn't want to say, oh, well, you know, uh, the Germans should have won to stop the rise of Hitler. Uh, but Germany at the time, unlike Nazi Germany, was a semi-democratic country. There was an elected parliament, the Reichstag, in which actually the Socialist Party was the largest single party uh, during World War One, And and so it's quite possible you would have had a situation uh, not so different from now, where Germany is uh, would have been a more democratic country, I think, over time, uh, the largest, most uh, economically powerful country in in Europe, and perhaps we could have gotten there <laughs> without uh, a Second World War. And, and there were some wise observers at the time of the, the Treaty of Versailles, at the end of World War I, who predicted that, that, that the brutal manner of, of ending it, punishing Germany, would create World War II. But there were even people, as you describe in the book, uh, Americans even, before the United States entered the war a hundred years ago, that, that predicted it would be a disaster. Who, who were these people who had it right at the time? Yes, these are the people I write about, uh, the people in the Peace Coalition. Uh, they're quite a diverse group of people. There were people on the left, socialists and anarchists. Uh, um, Mars Hilquit was an um, immigrant uh, labor lawyer from uh, Latvia. He was, in many ways, the leader of the um, sort of anti-nationalist wing of the Socialist Party, if you will. He wrote a lot of the uh, main statements of the Socialist Party uh, uh, about the war and against the war. Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist, was against the war, which also had progressives like Robert La Follette, uh, the senator from Wisconsin who was a Republican. Um, and you had Southern Democrats uh, who we now think it was quite conservative. They're certainly they were Dixiecrats, they were, they were racist, but they also opposed having a strong central government dedicated to, uh, to military strength and military supremacy around the world. The the uh, majority leader of the House of Representatives, a guy named Claude Kitchen from North Carolina, uh, was a leader of the anti-war forces and one of the 50 Congress people who voted against uh, going to war in April 1917, and he was voting against uh, his own president, president of his own party, Woodrow Wilson. So the argument, really, of the anti-war people was was that uh, there was no national interest of the United States to go to war. Um, if the U.S. Uh, hadn't... Uh, been carrying military goods for the Allies on American ships. The German torpedoes uh, wouldn't uh, have targeted uh, the American ships. Uh, if Americans hadn't been traveling on British and French ships, uh, then they would not be at risk uh, of, be, of being killed, they argued. And also they believed, uh, and this is a, some ways kind of conservative, 
argument, I believe, that that uh, U.S. prepared to go to war, had a ma- massive military as large as the ones uh, in Europe, um, then it would end up um, uh, engaging in, in innumerable conflicts around the world, uh, whether the United States national interest was at stake or not. And, and that's an argument that um, uh, um, more conservative people who wanted to sort of keep the government smaller uh, and not do very much at home could support as well as as progressives and uh, and left wingers uh, who wanted uh, a stronger uh, federal government in order to uh, to help workers and small farmers, so in that sense, it was a coalition based on an agreement about what they didn't like, as opposed to an agreement about what they did want. And and it wasn't just uh, you know a handful of outlier far seeing oh, no. radicals, right? This was not at all. No, not at all. It was. You know, it's, it's we, there are no public opinion polls yet. That was uh, those didn't really hack come to the 1930s. But it's pretty clear from the kind of battles you had in Congress uh, by uh, the fact that in 1916 Woodrow Wilson ran for re-election on the slogan "He kept us out of war." That most Americans did not want to go to war um, until very just a few weeks really before U.S. actually did declare war and. And I think uh, so the anti-war coalition, that is people in Congress and outside Congress, uh, I think felt uh, probably rightly, correctly, that they had the people on their side. Uh, but there were very powerful forces against them. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the former president, uh, um, Henry Cabot Lodge, the most powerful uh, Republican in the Senate, uh, and a lot of uh, big industrialists were also uh, in favor of going to war. And the major, the major newspapers in the major cities were as well. So, so there was a real contest, a real conflict, a real debate about, about this. But I think it's, uh, most historians agree that until uh, just a few weeks before the U.S. went to war, most Americans probably would have said in a public opinion poll if they'd been asked that uh, they didn't want to go to war. And one way we know this is one of the tactics that the anti-war coalition tried to use uh, in the last few months before the U.S. went to war was they called on the government to sponsor a referendum. Uh, said, let Americans vote about whether the U.S. should go to war. Uh, this is not in the Constitution, of course, uh, but Congress, you know, is the only body that can declare war in the Constitution. But but uh, the anti-war people were pretty convinced they would win such a referendum, or else they wouldn't have called for it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they kept pushing for it through the 30s, and uh, President Roosevelt was against it, and it never passed to this day. No, the, 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 the Ludlow Amendment. Right, right. But I, I think when Roosevelt followed Wilson and got reelected on a I'll keep you out of war uh, you know, campaign, uh, nobody thinks he actually meant that. Uh, everybody, as far as I know, thinks he was lying. Was Wilson sincere? when he campaigned for re-election on I'm, I'm against war and then not long after was for war? Well, you know, I think I disagree with, you know, some of the people you, <laughs> you mentioned, I think, on that. I think, I think Wilson was actually quite ambivalent. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I was talking about Roosevelt. I'm asking about Wilson. Oh, oh, Roosevelt in the late 30s. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a different matter. Um, no, I think it's true. I think uh, Franklin Roosevelt understood, and I think he was correct, actually, <laughs> that... Um, uh, you know the threat of Nazi Germany and uh, uh, and Imperial Japan was a was a real threat to uh, uh, to American national interests. I think World War II was was a war the U.S. needed to fight uh, as opposed to World War One. Uh, but it's certainly true he was not sincere. <laughs> um, and and of course uh, even before the U.S. gets into World War II, before the bombing Pearl Harbor, the draft is reinstituted. Uh, the draft which had been ended after World War One and uh, U.S. Uh, Quite openly is is helping the uh, the Russians um, and uh, with Len Lease and the, and the British try to defeat uh, oh to try to help defeat Nazi Germany. 
Yeah, in fact, this is not the subject of your book, but I can't resist, as as we do disagree on this point, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, sort of followed Wilson's model and claimed that various German attacks on U.S. ships were attacking innocent ships when they were, in fact, assisting British planes. He claimed to have a German map of plans to carve up South America that was completely fraudulent, claimed to have Nazi plans to uh, rid the world of religion, which was, you know, completely fabricated. And, and do you, you think this sort of lying and manipulating of the U.S. public was somehow justified because no, Daddy no, I don't, knew I don't, better. I don't think it was justified, uh, but I do think that <laughs> that the end was justified, uh, as opposed to the end in World War One was justified. That, that's all I'm saying. Um, uh, and I do think that that uh, clearly FDR would have liked to, um, you know, have have Germany uh, defeated and have it, uh, in Europe and have the Japanese defeated by the by the Chinese. Uh, without American troops going in if he could. I don't think uh, he was thirsting to send American troops into battle. But, but I do think he, he, uh, he knew that, as you mentioned, that in the late 1930s, uh, most Americans were opposed to going uh, into war in Europe, especially again. And, uh, you know, the Congress passed uh, neutrality acts, I think, three times in the late 1930s, uh, the language of which was really borrowed from the language of the uh, and the and the demands of the anti-war coalition during World War One. So, in many ways, uh, what's happened in the late '30s was was in many ways a rerun of uh, what happened uh, 20 years before. It's it's an interesting contrast to me, though, because in World War One, in your book, which is excellent, I highly recommend, it's called "War Against War: The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918." Michael Kazin, you you suggest that the peace activists really had it right and and really saw the future better than anybody else. Where in World War II and the lead up to World War II, you had peace activists saying, "Do not get in. Allow a negotiated settlement. Uh, let the let the Jews out of Germany." Because this was, of course, the the Nazi madness originally was export all the Jews. And uh, peace activists who went to to Churchill and to Anthony Eden and said, "Bring the bring the Jews out of Germany. You could evacuate all these thousands of British troops. You can do the same." And, and the response from Churchill and Eden was, "We can't be bothered. Too much trouble. We don't care." about Jews. Uh, and and the peace activists said, if you keep this war going, they're going to kill more. Uh, it, it seems to me they were right that time as well. Well, maybe, but the final solution, you know, the, the, the genocide against the Jews uh, began, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, before Pearl Harbor, began uh, really right after the, uh, during the, uh, the German invasion of, uh, of the Soviet Union in uh, June yes. and early July 1941. So, But why so, keep it going? <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, but, you know, I think um, Hitler, as opposed to, to, to Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler really wanted to take over the world, I think. Uh, he would he would have, uh, once, if he'd conquered Britain, um, and, of course, conquered the Soviet Union, uh, which, in the end, the Soviet Union really broke broke the back of the German army, or the Wehrmacht, as you probably know, not not the U.S. Army. Um, Obviously. Uh, if he'd done that, then I think uh, he would have tried to take over the United States. Uh, I mean, he really believed that, um, uh, those with his racial theories, uh, with his genocidal uh, uh, desires, uh, you know, had to had to dominate the world. And, and so I think, you know, when you have a figure like that, um, who's who's uh, driving driving the war, um, uh, in no sense a defensive war, I think. Uh, then I think, uh, you know, someone like that has to be defeated. I mean, as 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 a Jew, I had you know 
um, relatives who died uh, in concentration camps uh, in in Europe, and and I'm I'm very glad that uh, you know the United States helped to defeat Hitler. Uh, as I said before, it was the great irony that a, that a tyrant almost as bad as Hitler, Joseph Stalin. Uh, uh, led, you know, his people to, to really break the back of the, of the German army, uh, even before, uh, American troops got into, uh, to France in 1944. Yeah, but it seems to me you're correcting a lot of misunderstandings about World War One, and we've got a lot of misunderstandings about World War Two, and we now turn to groups called things like the, the Anne Frank Center for, uh, Wisdom, uh, on Opposing Trump's Anti-Semitism. Uh, but Anne Frank's visa was denied by the U.S. State Department when her Father rep- applied for you know ships of Jewish refugees were chased away by oh, the no, U.S. I Coast Guard. I mean, I, I there was think, no interest but, in helping yeah. the Jews. I, I, I mean, to, to underline how you know anti-Semitic Amer- American foreign policy was, to underline how anti-Semitic um, even times for pro-fascist uh, some people in the in the British uh, government were, especially in the uh, in the Conservative Party, the Tory Party, is one thing. That's not to say that World War II in the end wasn't a just war. Uh, one can one can, one can look at at the the terrible things uh, people on uh, the U.S. and and British side did and thought uh, before the war, even during the war, with Japanese you know relocation, of course, in this country, without um, taking the next step and saying 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 oh, saying, oh war must be fought. Uh, I think I think it's it's possible to think both things at the same time. It's possible to blame. Um, uh, the, the the Allied side uh, for all kinds of crimes, uh, bombing of Dresden, for example, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Later, of course, without uh, stepping back and saying, "Well, that war could could have been avoided." I don't think it could have been uh, yeah. because you, you think, I don't think Hitler was going to stop. You, but you think uh, you think an army that couldn't get Norwegians to obey, that couldn't get the Dutch to obey, that couldn't get the Eastern Europeans to hand over the Jews, that that was that was you know lessons were being learned in Rosenstrasse and elsewhere that that we now know about how to resist occupations. You think you think they could have conquered and occupied and taken over Russia? And then, and then uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously, it, it, well, it nobody's was, done it. <laughs> obviously, it took 20, 25 million uh, Soviet citizens died, you know, in that war. I think yeah, the they, they, they said and, twenty-seven, uh, something like that. And so, um, uh, you know, it seems like you know, obviously, um, the the Germans and their allies uh, uh, were willing to willing to willing to fight and fight and fight and, and try to. And try to take over the Soviet Union, and so you know, as a result, uh, you know, so many people died. Uh, you know, I just think um, to take seriously uh, what what um, Hitler was trying to do, and what he had the Germans behind him to do uh, for most of the war, at least, uh, even when it started to go bad uh, for the German army. You know, one has to one has to uh, believe. I guess I, you're you're a, you're a pacifist. It sounds like you're against all wars, and I'm against. Most wars, <laughs> but I'm not against wars where I think civilization itself is at stake. And I do, think it was in World War II. Do you think that Franklin Roosevelt had a committee in Congress uh, stop the Ludlow Amendment and never allow a vote on it because he suspected that with a Ludlow Amendment, the people might vote against war or for some... Oh, I think that's quite true. Yeah, yeah I and, and that, sure. And sure. So the anti- uh, I mentioned that a little anti- bit in, in, in my book, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the le- in, the, uh, in the last uh, chapter, the chapter about the legacy of the anti-war movement. No, I think it's quite true, but... But it doesn't know, give you any I mean, pause. It doesn't give you any pause at all, hesitation, the, the anti-democratic nature of fighting yeah, wars agree, for democracy. I'd rather, I'd rather have, you know, uh, some anti-democratic acts by Roosevelt, who was, after all, elected 
democratically to the presidency as opposed to <laughs> uh, the the people who are running the governments in Germany and uh, in Italy and Japan who are fighting. I mean, there's no con- there's no there's, there's no comparison between the anti democratic acts on occasion of Franklin Roosevelt and and the absolute uh, tyranny of uh, of Hitler and Mussolini and, uh, and the Japanese militarists. Same goes for Trump. Well, Trump was elected democratically. I hate the fact that he was, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, obviously, didn't win a majority of the popular vote, but he did win a majority electoral vote. And uh, you know, uh, like you, I assume, you know, I'm. I hope people keep resisting him every means they have at, at, at their disposal. Sure. Well, every every effective that is, in my view, exactly, nonviolent exactly. means of. No, I, I'm I'm with you there. I'm. I think. Uh, when, when 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 peaceful protest is allowed and is flourishing right now, actually, uh, it's uh, absolutely suicidal for a movement to engage in violence. I, I think part of the anti-democratic nature of wars, and this goes back to what the topic of your book, World War One, uh, is that there's a need for a draft and there's need for enforcement of a draft. And beginning with Wilson, we saw this incredible erosion of civil liberties and the locking up of, in prison of people who spoke against the draft and yes. you know yes, violent indeed. resistance to recruiters. I mean, is we we think of these wars as bringing freedom and in defense of freedom and so forth. But, you know, not only during World War II did we have an apartheid state for African Americans and lock up all the Japanese Americans and uh, and so forth, but the, the, to get people to fight in the war requires compelling them to. Yep, uh, definitely, definitely. Know. No, I mean, this is what Randolph Bourne um, famously said, war is the health of the state. And uh, he was quite right about that. And, and one of the results of World War I um, is the beginning, I think, of, of a national surveillance state uh, that, of course, we still have today, um, which has flourished since 9-11 especially. And uh, it took a break for a while in the 20s and 30s, but then it uh, uh, it went full bore, of course, from World War II on. And it never really stopped because the Cold War came on right after World War II as a uh, as a rationale for, uh, for a larger intelligence service, uh, more powerful FBI, um, you know, various other aspects of the national surveillance state and and this of course is you know many ways uh world war one began a century of war um yeah. at least 75 years of war from 1914 to 1989 and of course uh 9-11 began perhaps <laughs> let's hope not another century of war uh at least a constant fear of war and constant uh, readiness for war on the part of uh, the federal government uh and many americans as well who who were employed in these various uh, parts of the national security state yeah. so um no, I agree with you there completely, David. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think we can. Yeah, we we, we yeah, can sorry. agree. I imagine that uh, you know you you would be happy to have done without World War Two by means of doing without World War One and without. Yeah, the, yeah, and I would have been happy to do. do I mean, I would have been happy if. Uh, you know, someone had assassinated Hitler. <laughs> um, but, but this is my and, this is my yeah. point that it's the, the World War II and the mythology around it distorts U.S. thinking so much that everybody sort of asks in philosophy class, "Would you kill baby Hitler? Not would you give baby Hitler a good education and get him into art school and make him a happy human being? No, I agree. Would you well, kill he tried to get into art and, school. It was his and, bad art that didn't get him into art school. Well, no, it was his I, nerves. I it was his nerves. He wouldn't yeah. even apply. But no, but. I think I mean I I I mentioned this in the book too, War Against War. That I think you know, the United States has been at war through most of its history. People don't really realize that. Uh, that includes, of course, the wars against Native Americans. Um, and in fact, you can find very few years in American history where the U.S. was not uh, at war somewhere. Um, but why do uh, we all is, say kill baby Hitler and nobody says avoid World War One? 
You know, I'm sorry? It, 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 the, the questions in all the philosophy ethics courses in U.S. universities are never, should we have avoided World War I? They're always right. the more fantastical, should we have killed baby Hitler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think, I think it is true that, and I mentioned this in the book, that, that as you say, you say yourself, that World War II, you know, becomes, well, you know, that war was necessary, which I, I again, think it was uh, by the time we actually get into it. And, and, uh, uh, and that becomes a template for other wars. Uh, so people keep hoping that the next war will be like World War II. Right. <laughs> and certainly those who, who take us into war believe that and use some of the same language. They talk about appeasement. They talk about, you know, battling tyranny. You know, so, so in some ways we haven't really moved past World War II. Uh, and that's a real problem, I think. Uh, well, I'm trying I mean, my that hardest. Was a problem, especially in Vietnam, which is, you know, like sort of came of age uh, in politically uh, and otherwise uh, during the late 1960s uh, as an anti-war activist against that war. And I think... Uh, it was very clear that that uh, the rationales for defeating uh, the Vietnamese uh, revolution is what it was were were very much uh, the same rationales for defeating Hitler. Um, yeah, but here we are with uh, Trump proposing another seven hundred billion dollars or so uh, in our biggest social project of the past seventy five years. That is preparation for more wars, and you ask anybody to defend it, and they immediately shout World War Two. Uh, yep. And you right. say, go right. read this wonderful book uh, about World War One called War Against War by Michael Kazin. And you see, we could have avoided World War Two by many, many ways, including having avoided World War One. And they don't want to hear about that. Uh, they just nope, want to tell right. you about the next Hitler, always the next Hitler. Uh, and, and so I, I think some rethinking about, about both of these wars and this history of investing in this project for 75 years uh, has, to be, has to be reconsidered. I think you're right, but of course, once something happens like World War One, then <laughs> and, and, and it does help bring on World War Two, then you know one has to analyze uh, whether it's necessary to fight that war or not. That's that's my only disagreement with you. I think yes, I would have. I wish we had stayed at World War One. Yes, I wish World War One had ended differently. Of course, yes. like you, I hope. I wish the war hadn't happened at all. As, as we know, uh, World War One was was completely uh, avoidable. Um, Yes. In fact, none, none of the belligerents in the in the war even expected to to have to fight it. Um, yes. In uh, when the war began, uh, they all thought, uh, the, "Oh my God, you know, we have to get into the war." The Germans got into the war because uh, they felt the Russians were about to declare a war on them, and then the French got in because the Germans declared war on them. The British got in because the Germans went into Belgium, uh, and and it was. You know this, this this cataclysm that nobody really planned on. But but Wall Street spent the interwar years investing in Nazi Germany. The United States now is you know spending these pre World War three years uh, as the leading seller and dealer of weapons to the world. Uh, you know there is another way possible, and we know so much more about nonviolent resistance and its and its powers and capabilities now, and so much more about the the risk of having these nuclear weapons around now that we don't, you know, we don't have another century to play with, you know. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope we're not in pre-World War Three days. <laughs> hope, you're, hope you're correct about that. Well, uh, very I, much so. I, I, I hope not, but it certainly, it certainly looks that way uh, if we don't change course. Uh, and, I, and I recommend this book to anyone who wants to change course. It's called War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918 by Michael Kazin. And I, and I want to tell people that coming up this April 4th, which is the 
100 years since the Senate voted for World War One, and then was followed by the House and the President a couple days later, it is also 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. spoke against the Vietnam War at Riverside Church, and we're planning, uh, we at World Beyond War, you can go to worldbeyondwar.org for the details, are planning events around the country and the world, and you, uh, Michael Kazin, and I, and Eugene Perrier, and Medea Benjamin, and Maria Santelli, will be speaking at an event in Washington, D.C. Uh, this coming April 4th, and I, I very much appreciate your agreeing to do that and to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks a lot. Enjoy doing it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.